Congress voting on the president's coronavirus relief plan, we'll hear from Indiana Senator Mike Braun, Congressman Larry Bouchon, and Congressman Andre Carson. Plus, Indiana explains its vaccine eligibility as the nation crosses a grim coronavirus mark. And we'll talk one-on-one -on -one with the state's new chief equity officer. It's all ahead this Sunday in Focus. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bob Donaldson. The nearly $2 trillion relief bill is one step closer to being enacted. It includes stimulus checks, money to help schools reopen, and assistance for unemployment benefits. Washington correspondent Basil John has the latest from Capitol Hill. The battle over the American Rescue Plan hit the House floor. We will take a vote uh, to reduce the spread of this virus, to put, as we keep saying, vaccinations in the arms of the American people, money into the pockets, children into the schools, workers back into their jobs. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says this bill provides the relief the American public desperately needs. I'm enthusiastic. I think that this is a policy that is sound on substance. Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal says the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package provides the tools Americans need to fight the pandemic. I think it will have far-reaching impacts on the lives of the American people. And until we defeat the virus, it's hard to see how we get to full economic recovery. New York Congressman Paul Tonko agrees. It really reaches across all sectors and all economies to uh, make certain that we crush the virus. President Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan would provide $1,400 stimulus checks, secure funds to reopen schools, increase vaccine rollouts, and more. Pelosi's payoff bill still won't provide assurances to parents and students that their schools will even reopen. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says the bill is too big and too expensive and spends billions on Democrats' pet projects. Less than 9% of the bill will be used to fund public health. Less than 9%. Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Fred Keller says there is still $1 trillion left over from previous relief bills, and Congress should focus on that. They want to borrow another $1.9 trillion and have our kids and grandkids pay that debt back. We're also hearing from Indiana lawmakers, including Senator Mike Braun and Congressman Andre Carson, who spoke with our Dan Spieler earlier this week. What would this bill mean specifically for, for Hoosiers? I think it means so much. Uh, my, my, my priority is to make sure that the lives of Hoosiers are improved quite rapidly, working in conjunction with my colleagues in the delegation. We're talking about having $1,400 go to Americans who qualify, uh, a $400 a week jobless benefits supplement uh, and an extension of programs of making millions of Americans eligible for unemployment insurance. Uh, we're talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 by 2025. Uh, that is a controversial provision right now, but I'm still hopeful. Our issue is getting people back to work. And uh, when you take a minimum wage, it, as a business owner, I believe it's important to raise wages. Uh, just where you're doing it through the market and to where you're reflecting the differences among states. And you look at the tipped wage for the hardest hit part of our economy, restaurants. I was with owners and servers. They love it. It pays as much as union wages do in many cases. And part of Bernie's plan would be to get rid of it. That doesn't make sense. Bringing it up to some extent, I'd be for if it was differentiated by state or at least to a level where it didn't eclipse 
the state minimum wage. I haven't heard that kind of common sense thinking on the other side. We also got reaction from Congressman Larry Bouchon right before that vote. Unfortunately, right now, the uh, Democrats in the Congress have decided that they were, they're going the partisan way. And so they're going to do a process called reconciliation where they're not going to get any Republican votes because they've added on a lot of non-COVID related spending. What we need is we need more targeted spending. We, uh, you know, clearly some people need another uh, stimulus payment. And I don't think you'll find Republicans being against that. We also need to make sure the Paycheck Protection Program continues on uh, in a way that can be accessible. For those who have lost loved ones, this is what I know. They're never truly gone. They'll always be part of your heart. This week, President Joe Biden spoke to the American people about a grim milestone in the coronavirus crisis. More than half a million Americans have now died of COVID-19 in the last year. That includes 12,000 Hoosiers. President Biden, First Lady Jill Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff participated in a moment of silence and candle lighting ceremony at the White House. Indiana is making significant progress against COVID-19. The state released new county maps showing almost half of Hoosier counties are now in the lowest blue rating. Now, those counties can open at 100 percent. Hoosiers 60 and older can sign up for a COVID-19 vaccine appointment. That means an additional 432,000 people are, uh, are eligible. Even with expansion, some county health departments don't expect an increase in their supply for weeks. Kelly Rinke shares their frustrations. It is frustrating to hear, yes, you can expect an increase in doses in March to no, you are not getting an increased number of doses in March. In Madison County, the health department just opened a new site to accommodate more vaccine appointments. Now they're not sure if they will need the extra space next month. And, and I know that they're doing the best they can too. I know that. And so I'm not, please understand, I'm not laying blame I'm just, or, or um, um, pointing fingers. Stephanie Grimes says the health department gets 2,000 doses a week. But if supply was not an issue, she explains they could administer more than 3,000 doses a week. I'm waiting for that message that, okay, now we're going to we're going to increase your doses once more. Here's a look at COVID-19 first dose vaccine allocations to Indiana since December. The amounts have increased slightly over the past few weeks. This week saw roughly 20% more first doses. Keep in mind, Moderna doses did not arrive on time last week due to weather. I think we're all frustrated, you know. I know uh, with meetings with the state and other health departments, we're all asking the same question. When can we get more doses? Over in Wayne County, the health department says they could administer 5,000 doses a week. They get 600 a week right now. So we bought a, a, uh, a mobile unit and we have not yet been able to take it out because we don't have enough doses to take from our clinic. Hoosiers who are not eligible yet are eager to sign up. County health departments are anxiously waiting to pick up the pace too. We're ready for it. A $36 billion Indiana budget proposal now goes to the Indiana State Senate for approval. The House voted to pass that plan. Lawmakers say it prioritizes businesses and education. It includes, it includes one-time investments in K-12 education, grants for small businesses, upgrades for Indiana Law Enforcement Academy, and broadband expansion. Democrats and the Indiana State Teachers Association say the proposal doesn't do enough. 
It does include the $600 million recommended in the state's Teachers Compensation Commission report. But that's like saying we fund drivers, not highways. We need to make sure that we have very strong public education systems for all of our students because that is the backbone of our society and it is a driver of our economy. The proposal now heads to the Senate where changes are of course possible. Tensions at the State House when lawmakers shouted others on the House floor last week. The three recommendations one group is now making to keep debates respectful moving forward. We'll talk with our panel about it. And up next, we'll talk one-on-one -on -one with the state's new chief equity officer. A look at her plan and how she'll measure success over the next year. For the first time, we're hearing from Indiana's newly created chief equity, inclusion, and opportunity officer. Kara Herring started her position on the same day Black History Month began. Kayla Sullivan spoke with her about her plan and how she'll measure success over the next year. The goal is to really sit down with our cabinet members and our state agency leads to look at opportunities to remove barriers to access and how Hoosiers get state services. That's Kara Herring's mission as she wraps up her first month as Indiana's newly created Chief Equity Inclusion and Opportunity Officer. She says barriers currently exist for many people. Thinking about individuals with disabilities, thinking about veterans, thinking about people of color and women, trying to remove any barriers to access that individuals from lower socioeconomic backgrounds may encounter when trying to get those state services. That's the first bucket. She says the second bucket is coming up with a workforce engagement plan for each state agency, digging into ways to retain diversity. Using the statistics, using the data to tell the story. Herring says the state's data disparity portal will be key to defining success, but it will take time. This is definitely a marathon and not a sprint. How do you feel about racial bias training or cultural competency training? Is this something that you may consider implementing in state agencies? Do you think it's a good idea? We're not quite there yet, but I do believe that we'll be there soon. And though closing disparity gaps is the goal, Herring says a chief equity, inclusion and opportunity officer won't ever stop being useful. I think we're always going to have to check ourselves and make sure that we are having discourse in a civil way that is beneficial to everyone. And Herring says she welcomes suggestions from others on what can be done for equity, inclusion, and opportunity in Indiana. From the Indiana State House, I'm Kayla Sullivan. An update from the Indiana State House now. Last week we told you about tense moments on the floor when Republican lawmakers shouted and booed black lawmakers during debate. Now we know the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus and the House Democrats met with House Speaker Todd Houston. They made three recommendations following that incident. They are reprimands to the representatives involved, safety measures, and mandatory racial equity and implicit bias training for all members. We will continue to push leadership to acknowledge and address this unacceptable behavior and monitor their progress for his part, Speaker Houston has not announced any potential punishments. He says he needs to do a better job of taking control of the House floor. Next month, the Black Legislative Caucus is planning a call of action advocating against discriminatory legislation. Let's bring in our panel to discuss these issues. Joining us, former Communications Director for Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner, the former Democratic State Party Chairman, Robin Winston, former Republican State Representative Mike Murphy, and the 2016 Vice Chair of the Indiana Trump Campaign, 
Tony Samuel. Jennifer, I'll start with you. Is there going to be long-lasting repercussions to what happened this session in the legislature? Well, I hope that the long-lasting part of this incident is that there is change brought about. I think the uh, mm -hmm. Black Caucus's requests of Speaker Houston are very rational, very straightforward, and they should be acted upon. What happened on the floor is unacceptable. And in order to bring about the change that is necessary, uh, there is training needed. Um, there are apologies that need to be issued. And we have to take this seriously. That kind of thing can't happen in the people's house. And I hope that moving forward, uh, that everyone involved understands the seriousness of it and takes the proper steps to make sure it never happens again. Mike, we'll bring you into the conversation. Speaker Houston seemed to take responsibility for what happened, saying that he could have played a bigger role in preventing it. Is that fair? Is, is that part of the problem? Well, certainly uh, he apologized, frankly, and took responsibility because that's what good leaders do. I mean, the buck stops at the speaker's podium, and that's what, uh, what Todd did. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's going to be a big uh, long-term uh, uh, impact. This has happened a few times, happened a few times during my tenure, fr quite frankly, several years ago where, you know, uh, tem tempers get, you know, flared over misinterpretation of one bill or another, whether it's going to be discriminatory or not or whatever. Um, you had different leaders back then, frankly, Bill Crawford, Charlie Brown, those guys, um, you know, were, were very well respected. They they kind of they kind of controlled the, the discussion and a lot and a lot of these issues. I think there needs to be apologies on both sides, quite frankly. And uh, I hope that that those who are involved, either Democrats or Republicans, white or black, they sit down at some point and and have a little meeting and realize there's a lot bigger things to accomplish than uh, than you know than than piking at each other all day long. Um, I just think it's just it's so nonproductive. Well, Robin, I'll bring you into the discussion now. I mean, is what happened indicative of a systemic problem in the legislature, or was it just a, a isolated incident? Well, I hope it's not indicative of anything systemic. Uh, we've got issues that cut across the board for everybody, whether it's jobs, education, criminal justice, making sure that people have a sense of equality. People look to the uh, Indiana, Indiana or Indiana General Assembly as a place where the decisions are being made in the best interest of everybody, not just the 523,000 African Americans in our state, everybody. If there's any semblance, a tinge of racism or bias, I think that can damage a lot of things that happen in the House, particularly with legislation that might impact urban areas. We saw that on transit uh, that came up this session. We saw efforts made to take over the IMPD. I think this has to stop. I think rational thoughts got to come forward, and I look forward to the speaker to take the lead on it. Tony, do you think that this will make it more difficult for, uh, for both sides to work together? Obviously, the Republicans in control of the legislature. Well, I think uh, if this had to happen, and, 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 and I wish it hadn't, I think we all uh, think uh, realize it's an unfortunate uh, incident, but it came at a, a good time in the sense that we had a, a week, mostly a week off as a break uh, so that tempers could cool. Um, I was working for the House Republicans as their communications director when Mike was a state representative. So I remember that tempers would flare uh, from time to time over really contentious issues like uh, major moves and, and daylight saving time and, and those kinds of things. 
but not really over uh, any any kind of racial issues as we've seen this week. And both sides need to step back. And I think uh, Speaker Houston has taken the right uh, attitude as far as uh, trying to take better control of the chamber. But remember, there's two sides to everything, and I'm not taking sides. But this uh, also, uh, you, you need to remember that uh, the freshman representative on the Republican side that was uh, presenting his bill was called a racist by by folks on the Democrat side. And you, you really aren't supposed to um, uh, question motives of legislation. That's one of the rules of the House. It's a rule that we should take uh, throughout society. So we have to be careful not to fall in the trap of what's happening at the national level where everybody's calling uh, one side uh, the, uh, racist over, or over everything that they can. You know, it's Sunday morning. I'm just going to say this uh, as a society as a whole. What we're getting away from is the Bible, uh, forgiving folks, not uh, judging folks. And that needs to change um, in, in the broader uh, society. And, and also now it's affected us here in the state, uh, in the state legislature. We need to take a step back and remember that people uh, put us, put those uh, legislators in office to work together and not to look for reasons to attack each other. I don't want our discussion to end before we touch upon what's going on in Washington right now. That stimulus bill, obviously the minimum wage has been taken out, at least it, it appears in this discussion. Jennifer, is that the end of the, uh, the minimum wage discussion or are there other ways that, that Congress can enforce a, a raising of the minimum wage for many companies? Well, there definitely are other ways to accomplish the same end. Um, and I think, you know, you're already also seeing companies on their own, uh, like Costco on Friday announcing that it's going to raise its minimum wage to $16 an hour uh, voluntarily. I think that we will get to that goal. Um, and, you know, it's obviously a setback to have the Senate parliamentarian say it can't be in this vehicle, but I think we're going to get there. Mike, I want to bring you in on the discussion on the, uh, the stimulus right now. Obviously, the Democrats, if they keep their coalition together, they can get this done. But at what cost? What about bipartisanship? Something that the president has said is very important to him. Well, you know, it's, both sides claim they want bipartisanship. Neither side does it in practice. Um, the Democrats are going to use a reconciliation tool that the Republicans have used. And Lindsey Graham, talk about hypocrites, He's complaining about the Democrats not uh, being bipartisan, and then he and his buddies use the reconciliation process to jam things down the Democrats' throats in the last four years. I mean, it's a, it's a game of advantages. You know, to get back to your, your question about the, uh, the uh, minimum wage, Congress and the federal government always has the power of the purse. You know, it's like seatbelts. If you don't wear seatbelts, then they're going to withhold federal money. If you don't do this, they're going to withhold federal money. If you don't do that, they're going to withhold federal money. So the federal government always has the leverage to not give you the money you're owed, whether you're a city, a state, a town, or, or a university, if you, don't, uh, if you don't toe the line. All right, I'm afraid we are out of time. That'll do it for our panel this week. Again, thank you all for making the time on this Sunday. Coming up next on In Focus, we are less than three weeks until March Madness here in Indianapolis. What Governor Holcomb has to say about whether fans could lead to the spread of COVID-19. In less than three weeks, all eyes will be on Central Indiana for March Madness. The NCAA men's basketball tips off on March 18th 
at the JW Marriott, that giant bracket going up along the front of the building. All games will be played in Indianapolis, Bloomington, and West Lafayette at six different venues, as you know. Capacity will be limited to up to 25%. We know some venues aren't planning to get even close to that. There are questions about whether fans coming to the tournament could lead to more coronavirus spread in Indianapolis. Governor Eric Holcomb addressed that this week. They've been doing this their whole season and before uh, that first tip-off. So there's, there's, this has been institutionalized for them, and they know, um, they know the parameters once they arrive here on Hoosier soil as well. So absolutely we welcome um, the, the competition and the attention that we're going to get, and, and we'll work together to make sure that it's a successful event. Teams will be required to have negative coronavirus tests before they get to Indianapolis. They'll also be tested, obviously, throughout the tournament. Up next, winners and losers. Stick around. All right, time for this week's winners and losers. Tony, we'll start with you. Uh, winner, Governor Holcomb and the, the administration for the way they've steered us through this COVID crisis. The numbers are now, go now going down, but he's not keeping taking his eyes off of the dire situation at hand. Losers are anybody that voted for the uh, $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief in the U.S. Congress. Uh, $350 billion of that went to state uh, bailouts for the Democrat-led states that uh, can't handle the fiscal uh, issues. Robin, you're up next. I disagree with Tony. $1.9 trillion will make a difference at the kitchen tables across our nation and particularly our cities. The Biden Justice Department for reopening the investigation of the um, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Mike, your thoughts? I'm my own loser this week. Last week, I inadvertently said that uh, Jim Lucas, Representative Jim Lucas, uh, booed on the floor last week against the African-Americans. He did not. He simply introduced a point of order. Jennifer, you get the last word. And I have uh, just one loser, which is the uh, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, which uh, on Friday uh, got a scathing report about how they handled uh, last year's riots. But it's also a, a roadmap for them to improve in the future and prevent any such situations from ever happening again. Our thanks to our panel and thanks to you for joining us this week. We'll see you again next week on In Focus.